0: Welcome to Cowan Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors.
1: Hello, my name is Charles Ree, Cowan's Healthcare Technology Analyst, and welcome to the Cowan Future Health Podcast. Today's podcast is part of our monthly series that continues Cowen's efforts to bring together thought leaders, innovators, and investors to discuss how the convergence of healthcare, technology, and consumerism is changing the way we look at health, healthcare, and the healthcare system. And hosting with me today, I'm joined by my colleague, Eric Asaraf, from Cowan's Washington Research Group. And in this episode, we'll be discussing the regulatory outlook for telehealth, including work towards extending current federal rules, expanding access to telehealth during the current public health emergency, and state-level efforts on expanding medical licensure flexibilities. In addition, we'll also talk about the application of telehealth as more care in general is being delivered in the home and the needed regulatory changes required to enable that shift. And to discuss these topics, we are joined by Krista Drobak, Executive Director of the Alliance for Connected Care, an industry trade group dedicated to ensuring that all all patients are able to realize the benefits of telehealth and virtual care. Krista has over 20 years of experience in federal and state government, including Director of the Health Division at the National Governors Association's Center for Best Practices, Senior Advisor at the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and Health Advisor to two U.S. Senators on Capitol Hill. Krista, thanks for being with us today.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: So yeah, thanks, and Krista, so maybe maybe to start, can you tell us more about uh, your work at Alliance for Connected Care?
0: Yes, absolutely. The Alliance for Connected Care started eight years ago. It's a 501c6, which means we are a lobbying organization. Um, It is made up of employers, health systems, technology um, companies. So we have Amazon, CVS, Walmart, Intel, and then um, we have some of the largest and most progressive hospital systems in the country, Intermountain, Ascension, Stanford. Johns Hopkins, MedStar, and then um, some of the vendors, Amwell, MD Live, for example. And most importantly, we have a very robust advisory committee that is made up of patient groups like MS, Parkinson's, ALS, and also provider groups like physician's assistants, um, primary care providers, and nurses. So we have a very broad group of uh, perspectives. So when we go to Capitol Hill and say, We've managed to agree on something within our coalition. We're confident in saying that it is a consensus position.
1: And so, a lot of your work then is really uh, voicing the uh, what you know, providing voice to the industry in terms of where uh, your constituency would like uh, telehealth to move towards. And it and it seems like, you know, th- this is the time as you know, one of the few positives to come out of the pandemic has been really the emergence of telehealth. Obviously, it's been something that had been slowly gaining traction uh, prior to COVID, but you know, the pandemic has really moved it into the mainstream. Um, You know, certainly a key to that, uh, we've seen actions taken by Congress and CMS in the early days of the pandemic uh, to expand access to telehealth. Maybe can you start by reminding us some of the key changes that were enacted sort of in the early part of uh, last year?
0: Now, when you say that telehealth started gaining traction, it really was mainly in, a, in the employer market prior to the pandemic. And we were battling it out in Congress to get coverage in Medicare. And we kept saying, you know, if, if, we, if people just tried telehealth, then we would have a constituency who would be up, you know, asking, um, asking Congress for coverage in Medicare because they would want to continue it. And so as soon as the pandemic came, we suddenly had the experience of telemedicine being offered in Medicare, and the reason why it was so important is it, it really rounds out the rest of the market. It's impossible to have major changes in the way that people receive care if you don't have all markets, so we needed Medicare and Medicaid to join the employer market in order for providers to start changing their workflows and, um, and for telehealth to really become an embedded part of the healthcare system. What happened in March of 2020 was remarkable. Congress passed in the very first COVID response bill, the ability for CMS to waive the restrictions in Medicare. So they, people no longer had to be in a rural area, and they no longer had to be in an institution. You could receive telemedicine anywhere from a provider, and they actually changed the rules around a provider address, so the provider could be at home and submit a claim to CMS as if they were in their office. That just created exponential growth in the use of telehealth. Of course, people didn't want to be in person anyway, so We now have a whole group of seniors who have tried telehealth, and it is, it becomes difficult for providers because if Congress doesn't keep these flexibilities in place, providers still have patients that want to keep telehealth in place. So it creates kind of a conundrum for for us all, but that's one of the reasons we're working so hard to make sure that Congress keeps these uh, flexibilities around.
1: And maybe can you kind of highlight some of the key ones, obviously the um, extension within Medicare... Uh, sorry, uh, access within Medicare, but, there, you know, there were a few others along the way as well. Maybe just mm-hmm. highlight some of those.
0: Yes. So not only did coverage change in Medicare, but practitioners that could provide telehealth also changed. So all of a sudden, PT, OT, speech therapy, those things could also be offered through telehealth. Um, you could prescribe controlled substances used for behavioral health through telehealth. So one of the big use cases in the pandemic has been the need for mental health services. So you can now prescribe mental health drugs that are classified as controlled substances. You can um, do that over telehealth. Um, We have 35 million Americans in this country with health savings accounts in the employer market there, uh, you know, it's very frequent that people have a high deductible plan coupled with the health savings account. The IRS does not allow first dollar coverage for telehealth if you hold an HSA. So um, there was a provision allowing for first dollar coverage for telehealth if you have an HSA. So employers were able to provide telemedicine services um, on a first dollar basis to all of their employees, not just their employees that um, had you know an HMO or a PPO. Um, so those are the really big ones um, that happened because of the pandemic. So, I mean, I could go on and on about Medicare, but the main, the main provisions were that you could suddenly receive telehealth anywhere.
2: Hey, Krista, Eric Asraf here. Thanks for being here. Um, so most of the telehealth flexibilities uh, will end when the public health emergency is declared over. We know that the PHE will at least go through year end and then likely extended in three-month increments after that. Can you remind us which policies are, are related to the PHE and which ones are not uh, and yes. what your group is doing to extend those changes?
0: Yes. If you had told me in mid-2020 that we would be hopeful to get an extension, I would have been surprised. I w- was thinking we would have permanent change because how do you go back from this? But yeah we are currently seeking extensions of two years and most of them can be done at the time that the PHE expires, but there is one that expires at the end of this this year. It had a hard stop in the statute and that is the HSA provision. It's been challenging for employers because they have open enrollment coming up and they already have developed their benefit packages for 2022 and they aren't sure if the HSA provision is going to be expanded. So, if you are an HSA holder and you have been using telehealth services in 2021, it's possible that you have a benefit package that seemingly covers it, but in fact, you won't have access to that if Congress doesn't expand it. So, extend it. So, we're trying to get an extension of the HSA provisions before the end of this year. The rest of it is dependent on the PAG and Congress. The Congressional Budget Office has said that. Their estimation is that the PHE will stay in place until July of 2022. In some ways, it hurt us on lobbying because the Hill, Capitol Hill will say, oh, well, we have six more months to deal with that. We're not going to deal with it before the end of the year. And what we've been saying is you need to deal with this at the end, by the end of the year because we may not have vehicles next year. It is an election year. Things get a lot more complicated. Um, and also, you need something called an offset to pay for these things. And in the CBO, regardless of how much data we give them, still believes that telehealth costs more than in-person care, and they will, they will put what's called a score on it. And we need those offsets. Um, so we've been pushing hard for the end of this year for a two-year extension until the end of 2023. Now, CMS did have a, does have a small amount of authority. The statute is... is fairly restrictive, but they do have the authority to add codes. They added a whole new category of codes, Category 3 codes, and they have said, we're going to keep these codes in place until the end of 2023, and you, stakeholders, have to prove to us that these codes are worthy of being made permanent for telehealth use. Congress is interested in aligning their timing with CMS, so that makes us think that Any extension that happens will happen uh, extending it till the end of 2023. And we have a bill being developed in the Senate, and there are already bills in the House on both the HSA topic and the Medicare topic. I there will not be an extension of telehealth in the reconciliation package. This is a bipartisan bill, so as long as there are still offsets left over after reconciliation happens we will have a telehealth bill either at the end of this year or Q1 of 2022.
2: And I think you mentioned there's a few bipartisan bicameral bills uh, for permanent telehealth expansion, including Telehealth Modernization Act and Connect for Health. Uh, Are those still the main vehicles that you guys are looking at? Um, You mentioned not reconciliation, but what other vehicle could it go on? A spending bill or something else?
0: I think everybody has pivoted to an extension right now. The main reason that we are not having a robust discussion about permanent expansion is the perceptions of fraud and cost. Congress has a perception that somehow telemedicine is uniquely subject to fraud. The Office of the Inspector General at HHS has taken up six studies of telemedicine, three of which have come out, and all have been very positive. We have been telling Capitol Hill the OIG is going to be the final arbiter of if there's fraud or not. Um, we we can't just like perceive it, you know, and we have to actually look at the data. And in the past, tele fraud, there's been tele fraud, which is actually telemarketing fraud. So it was illegal solicitation of Medicare beneficiaries for purposes of overbilling durable medical equipment. It has nothing to do with telemedicine, but that those telefraud headlines, which tend to be hyperbolic te- headlines coming out of the Department of Justice, have given Capitol Hill a perception that there's telemedicine fraud. So what we really needed is the reports from OIG looking at who billed telehealth, were there false claims related specifically to telehealth. And what we found so far is there's been an increase in access, there's been no additional new fraud because of telehealth. And so we have to, as advocates, spread the message around the hill and um, send those OIG reports saying, OIG is not finding additional fraud. The second issue that we have to battle of the perceptions around is cost. That somehow telehealth costs more than in-person care. There's this long-standing conventional wisdom that seniors will get an in-person visit and also get a telemedicine visit for the same condition, or that a senior would not otherwise have sought care, but because telehealth is so convenient and easy that they will seek care. Now, we always argue that if that's the case, maybe it's actually better that they sought care early in their condition because otherwise it gets worse and it could potentially cost more. So we have been, in fact, on our website, connectwithcare.org, we have data from the health systems that we've been collecting, showing that there is a substitution effect. Telemedicine is substituting for in-person care. When in-person care goes up, telemedicine goes down. And you can see that from the various surges in COVID, that early on, telehealth was very high. But as people started coming back telehealth started going down, there was not an overall increase in utilization over what was expected utilization for 2021 or 2020 for that matter. So we have, as advocates, have to do a lot of education on cost. So that brings me to the extension. This is why we have pivoted to an extension, because what we've said to the Hill is give us another year and a half to two years and we will show you that you that you're worries about cost and your worries about fraud are not rooted in the data. Um, and so while I would love to be talking about permanent authorization of telemedicine and Medicare or as a first dollar coverage for HSA, until we have the data, we, we are, we're we not going to get that. The Telehealth Modernization Act is our preferred bill. Um, both of them are sponsored uh, principle sponsored by um, Congress uh, Senator Brian Schatz from Hawaii. Um, but the Telemedicine Modernization Act was written during the pandemic. So it was written with, you know, the doors blown off the place, you know, so, um, so we like TMA a lot. Um, the connect bill is a legacy bill. It was first introduced in 2016. It's been around a long time. They certainly made changes to it to make it better. Um, but the Telemedicine Modernization Act just basically says a a patient can be anywhere. Whereas the Connect Act still requires you to be in a particular place defined by law. And we don't think that you can really define someone's home um, because they could be in their driveway or at their neighbor's house. Um, And so the compliance officers don't necessarily like home as a place that you can accept telehealth. Um, So sorry for the long answer.
2: No, that's fine. Maybe switching to the, the state level, uh, your group is spearheading a campaign in which 230 organizations uh, sent letters to all 50 state governors asking them to extend licensure flexibilities for telehealth. Um, so, what's the key issue here? And uh, have you gained any traction on that
0: effort? Yes. So, if you want to practice in a state, you have to be licensed in the state where the patient is located. So, I'm going to talk about doctors just as an example, but really this applies to um, nurses, physician assistants, physical therapists, I mean, everyone. So you take a national exam, you, you do your boards, um, and but you still have to be licensed in the state where the patient is located. We think this is an artificial barrier. We think that if you have a license and are in good standing with a medical board and you're done your continuing medical education, you've paid all your fees to have a license, that you shouldn't necessarily be barred from treating patients across the country. When the pandemic hit, all 50 states waived some form of licensure to allow other providers to come into their state. Today, 27 of those states have had expirations of their flexibilities. So when in Virginia it, it expired, one of our members, Johns Hopkins, had to reschedule uh, all of these patients and tell them that they have to drive to Baltimore to get care. So it, it, there are real examples because of these flexibilities of patients accessing care across state lines that now can't do that. Um, I heard a story the other day of a of a guy who actually drove across the state line to do a telehealth visit in his car um, because because of these artificial barriers. So um, the letter that 230 groups sent to all 50 governors basically asked them to reinstate or continue their licensure flexibilities to allow for providers to practice across state lines. Um, We have a broader effort going on and in the form of a piece of legislation that would create a national compact, much like what we have with the driver's license compact, for example, um, that would allow for states to voluntarily opt in to a compact that would allow providers to cross state lines. Um, We're also working at the regional level to create regional free zones um, where you could um, practice across state lines in a particular region. It does Seem to be in these early stages easier to pass regional compacts because people live regionally. Um, you know, I live in the DC, Maryland, Virginia area, and we go between those three jurisdictions all the time. So it's a little easier for people to get their heads around a Virginia doctor practicing in Maryland than, nece- you know, than maybe like a doctor from Minnesota, you know, practicing in Virginia, for example. Um, so we're taking the national and a regional approach to this issue.
1: Krista, hasn't many states already, you know, um, enacted these kind of interstate compacts? You know, I I think like the Mountain West states, a bunch of them have uh, an agreement among themselves. Um, Isn't that, I I thought that was kind of a process that had already been underway here.
0: There are compacts in other areas, but not in medical and clinical licensing. Um, I mean, if you think about Oregon, There was a bill in Oregon that would have allowed an EMT and an ambulance to take a patient across state lines if the hospital was closer. If you're in a very rural part of Oregon and you're picking up a patient and there's a closer hospital that's in another state, um, they wanted to be able to take them there. And that bill failed. I mean, they just, there's like ironclad licensing boards that don't want to change the way that things work today, so there are some compacts in place. We like the nurses' compact, which is only RNs. It doesn't cover advanced practice nurses like NPs, just RNs. That one um, does have mutual recognition or, or reciprocity. So that's what we're looking for: is mutually recognized licenses. You still have to have a license, um, a nurse compact license, but you can practice in any compact state. Um, the other compacts don't really have mutual recognition. There is a doctor compact and you still have to be licensed in the state. It's supposed to expedite your license, but it doesn't really work, um, which is why our members are really all in on trying to create, you know, true license reportability.
1: You know, this kind of reminds me a little bit, I, I think this was several years ago, um, you know, the Texas, right? I think Texas uh, State Medical Board was <clears throat> really trying to prevent any telehealth uh, coming into the state. And, you know, I think there was being challenged on grounds of being kind of any competitive. I, I think in the end, Texas stepped, you know, stepped back from that challenge. Yes. I don't know if you recall that. Yes, I mean, the Teladoc
0: case. Yeah. yeah.
1: I, is that the, is that sort of the the main thrust here? Because it, it just really strikes to your point about being arbitrary. It's really, it's really about anti-competition. I mean, is that sort of the ground? At-
0: yes, that's what we think. Um, right. I'll give you another example. I think it was 2014, the FTC went all the way to the Supreme Court against the North Carolina Dental Board because the North Carolina dentists stepped in and said that tanning booths couldn't offer teeth whitening. And and, um, so the the FTC basically said the dentists are regulating their own market. Um, You know, there's nothing particularly advanced about teeth whitening and tanning boots can do it just fine. Um, And so the the dental boards were acting in an anti-competitive way. What the Supreme Court ruling in effect did was say that state legislatures have to oversee the medical boards. And that was supposed to be the check on their power. But in practice, it doesn't really work that way in our experience. It has, it's mainly almost like a, um, a, a a delegation of the power of the state legislature to the medical boards.
1: I see.
2: So on this topic of licensure, is this an area that Congress could get involved, or is it really up to the state governments uh, to deal with this issue?
0: Congress would have to preempt state law. And, Honestly, no one, I mean, there's going to be no appetite for that, but I also don't think that there is a federal agency that necessarily could take on licensure. Back in 2013, there was a bill that would have given the Department of Labor the job of overseeing licensure. I think most of us probably realize that healthcare markets are local, and it does make sense for states to have a role in making sure that the providers in their states are not, um, you know, putting. Patients in danger, for example. So, from our perspective, it is a state issue and should remain a state issue. But we need a national infrastructure so that um, you know patients can receive care and providers can provide care across state lines. So, it really is like, um, for example, adopting a child. It used to be that each state had different rules around adoption, so that you may not necessarily have the same rules if you have an adopted child if you go to a different state well that doesn't really make any sense so there is a compact among states for adoption there's a compact for driver's licenses there's lots of examples of agreements across states where they honor the the licenses or laws of other states so our bill that we're working to get introduced in Congress has hHS with great engagement from stakeholders and rule and comment, you know, open comment, a to create a compact that states could voluntarily join. So they would create the national infrastructure that then states could decide if they if they want to join it. And one of the reasons why we so strongly that HHS be the drafter of the compact is because we need to put an American citizen, the consumer at the center of the decisions about what this infrastructure is going to look like and not necessarily the parochial interests of some licensing board and all of the licensing compacts that we have in place today were drafted by licensing boards um we want to take this out of the hands of the licensing board and make it about the consumer think about the parent whose child just got diagnosed with epilepsy that needs to you know, load their child in the car and drive three states over to go see a specialist or the patient who had surgery in Baltimore, but lives in Richmond and has to drive back to Baltimore to get follow-up care. There's plenty of use cases for cross-state lines care. And we need to think about those people and the access to care rather than, um, you know, market share or, you know, licensing revenue from licensing fees or any of those other issues.
1: You know, maybe just follow up there. Like, so, you know, what are your, what do you think of the prospects then for getting that bill introduced and, um, you know, hopefully getting it passed uh, sometime next year? Any, any thoughts there?
0: Um, I think this is probably a longer road. Um, we would not be where we are today without the pandemic. So I would say this fast forwarded us five or six years. We are getting a lot more attention to this issue, especially because the flexibilities are expiring at the state level, and patients actually feel real impacts from not being able to go across state lines. Whereas before, it was just a way of life to drive to another state for for care. So those things are contributing, I think, to an acceleration of getting something done. But you know, our main problem here is the narrative. It, it's to us, it's really not about where the where the provider is is disciplined, because as soon as you start talking about this in a state legislature, they say, well, what does the medical board think, and how is the provider going to be disciplined, and, uh, you know, we really get down into the weeds about that. Our, what we want people to be asking is, how do we make things easier for families and patients, and what are the consequences of keeping these barriers up, um, because we think that it's not that hard hard to figure out how to do coordination among medical boards for purposes of discipline and less than 1% of, of doctors are disciplined every year. And yet thousands of patients could be accessing care across state lines. So we're, we're working now and just changing the narrative and getting a lot more attention on this topic.
1: Great. Before we move to the the next topic, you know, I I wanted to follow up. You you said at the beginning, right? um, You know, at this time last year, if we were just talking about extensions, you wouldn't have believed it you you thought a lot of these were going to be made permanent. and And I think there's generally this uh, perception that these you know that Congress won't let these flexibilities end. Um, you, you, you kind of you know alluded to the fact that there are some concerns in Congress. like how serious should should people be that uh, I'm sorry, how seriously concerned should people be that you know these extensions could end? Um, and you know these revo- you know rules kind of just revert back to how they were. You know almost you know on a dime
0: i wrote a blog about this i got tired of hearing people say oh the genie's out of the bottle or the toothpaste can't be put back into the tube you know and they sort of like wave their hands in the air and say well there's just no way congress could do this but in fact the percent misperceptions about telehealth have persisted it's so surprising to me and so let me give you an example what I was saying about telefraud being about durable medical equipment, we just complained mightily to the Office of the Inspector General about the misleading headlines around telefraud. And we said, you are doing damage on the Hill to our efforts to make sure that seniors can get ongoing access to telehealth by putting out these hyperbolic headlines. And it's confusing. So we need you to clarify this. So, lo and behold, a Friday afternoon, the Office of the Inspector General releases a statement in part saying we want to be clear that we're not talking about telemedicine fraud. We're talking about DME fraud. And, and so, of course, we all, like, you know, said hooray. And then two days later, two business days later on Tuesday, there was a hearing in the House Energy and Commerce Committee where almost every opening statement of a member of Congress talked about telemedicine fraud. And so it's it's like the headline grabbed everyone's attention, created conventional wisdom, and now we're up there, member my member, trying to educate staffers on the fact that we don't have a fraud problem with telehealth. So I think they feel an obligation to the taxpayers to make sure that we're not, you know, blowing the Medicare budget by allowing telehealth. So that is their job. And it's our job to show them that we're not going to, you know, create a budgetary disaster by allowing virtual care and medicare to go on in perpetuity and so they are taking a pause which i understand um but we probably need to get this data up to them and get them convinced pretty quickly because we really have basically until july of next year um to 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 make this change um so i i don't know i put us i guess at at this point, like 60 40 that it gets done
1: well that, that's probably I would have assumed a little higher. I, I guess I fell into the the other conventional wisdom that you know they won't let it let it end but uh, but you know but let's move on then, because you know and you know for for the sake of this conversation, let, let's assume that we we do to get, get the exchanges because I, I do think for you know for all the providers that we speak with, you know I, I think a lot of them are embracing telehealth a, as part of uh, their business and, and how they deliver care to patients. And, you know, as it really becomes sort of that integral part of care, uh, you know, we hear it a lot from companies as they talk about how they are um, incorporating that, you know, virtual care, uh, and they think about care delivery, particularly as they extend their reach into the, into the patient's homes. Uh, and I know that's a project that uh, you've been working on as well. Can you, can you tell us more about that?
0: Yes, back in mid 2020, when we had eternal optimism, we started thinking, well, what happens when we have permanent telemedicine coverage, including remote patient monitoring? We've been working so long to get coverage of the tools, but we hadn't necessarily thought deeply about the care models that those tools fit into. And we started these conversations and realized this is a whole different work stream because most care for patients is going to be integrated. It's going to be partially virtual and partially in person. And most patients want to stay home. They want to receive care in the home. So how do we combine the tools that would enable that with the policy changes that make it possible? So we launched a coalition called Moving Health Home. Some of the founding members are also members of the Alliance for Connected Care. We now are at uh, 25 members. Initially, when we Launched, we patted ourselves on the back because we thought, oh, we have such a diverse originating group of founders. We thought, oh, well, we've got in-home primary care, and we've got we've got health systems, we've got technology providers, and what we realized was we were missing a huge amount of healthcare, and 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 we needed policy in all of those areas. So now we have home infusion, home dialysis, um, in-home diagnostics, in-home labs, and. We need all of those pieces and policy changes in all of those areas in order to truly move healthcare into the home. And we're not saying that this is at the detriment of institutions. We just want this to be an option for patients. Um, so we have few work streams. We have a hospital at home work stream. There was a waiver during the pandemic. Um, there were two, Hospital Without Walls and Acute Care at Home that enabled Hospital at Home. We need an extension of that waiver plus a permanent program. We have a sniff at Home work uh, stream, which would allow skilled nursing facility care in the home. So you could literally be discharged from your home to your home. Um, and then we have a more catch-all bill that is really truly the bill that would move healthcare into the home that has all of these pieces, including you know primary care at home and, and again, like diagnostics and labs and all the things that you would need.
2: What are the regulatory barriers to at-home services? Uh, you mentioned the bill. Is it because CMS doesn't have statutory authority uh, across those different uh, benefit categories?
0: Yes, and also it's the way we pay. I mean, if you think about it, you're a physician, you can see a patient every 15 minutes if you make that patient come to you. If you go to a patient's house, it takes you half an hour to get there. And so you're losing, you know, triple your your income just driving around. Um, So the whole structure of how of our healthcare chassis is built on institution-based care. So that's, again, how when we started digging into this, we ended up hiring two additional people because we realized that it's such a a thorny area that we're trying to untangle all of these things. Um, One thing that I will say is everybody in the group is dedicated to value-based care and creating uh, um, a structure where we are creating more value and Um, But unfortunately, what we've learned is you really have to build the fee-for-service chassis before you can actually create the value-based care arrangements that are based on the billing structure of fee-for-service, which has been an incredible realization. So we essentially have to move all the clinical and institutional care into a home setting and then build the bundle around a home-based episode. So, um, I mean, I would say hopefully people remain interested in this issue and follow us at movinghealthhome.org. We also have Twitter and because we're gonna be coming out with a series of um, pieces of legislation and fact sheets um, that kind of uh, um, elucidate all of these issues. And we have an Avalier study coming out next month as well as a we have in the field right now, a morning consult poll asking people, would you prefer to be in the home? Um, so we have a lot of activity going on in in this area, and hope that you know people would will follow our um, our work.
1: You you talk about you know value based care here, and it I mean it seems like to a certain extent that we do we need a wholesale change in how we reimburse for healthcare before this can really work. Because it sounds like you're you're doing double the work here because you have to build a, a fee for service model just to get back to the value-based care model. But, you know, clearly, you know, CMS right now has a number of pilots going on, you know, under CMMI to explore different types of value-based arrangements. You you see all the commercial payers. Is that something where you can see commercial payers move faster? Uh, You you hear the likes of, you know, United and, you know, the Anthems of the World, you know, all talk about, you know, more and more of their reimbursement is under value-based care uh, arrangements. Um, is that something you can tap into here uh, in the shift to the home setting? I
0: think it's two different kinds of care. If you think about the employed population, they need more convenience. I mean, as a mom that had two kids with chronic ear infections, the, I, you know, you wake up in the morning, someone's got an ear infection, and basically the next two days of your life is, you know, all staying home or going to doctors. Or if somebody could come to my house, treat my kid. Uh, deliver me a prescription, and I could work from home for those two days. Like so much productivity would be, you know, preserved, um, and also like, you know, a, a parent's mental health. <laughs> um, and then of course you have young people who are traveling who um, may want someone, you know, to come to their home before they leave or something. Like there's so many convenience options that employed population might need because there aren't as many complex health care problems in the employed population. Whereas in a Medicare population, you have very complex, frail elderly people. And so, you know, if we're going to create models whereby people can receive services in the home, it really needs to fit both markets. So it, even though large employers might not be, serving seniors, they should still care what's going on in the Medicare market, because those rules definitely influence everything that goes on in the market. I mean, the Medicare conditions of participation is a great example to become a hospital, and the Medicare conditions of participation is a pretty high bar. Got
1: it. You know, I, I guess, you know, it's just a round out here, and really, Krista, it's been great to have you with us today. Um, you know, what, you know, just remind us then again, how we can, you know, keep following you both with, uh, um, with both organizations. Just remind us again, you know, where we can find more information, uh, how to, how to follow you.
0: Uh, The Alliance for Connected Care is connectwithcare.org. We have um, a semi-monthly newsletter that goes out. It's free. You can sign up for it. We are connectwithcare on Twitter. Um, Moving Health Home is, uh, also on Twitter as Moving Health Home, and then uh, movinghealthhome.org is our website. And again, we have a newsletter that includes all kinds of news. I mean, it's news and then also um, analysis of things that have happened. For example, in the reconciliation package, there's a big uh, win for in home care called Independence at Home. They're making that program permanent. So we're hoping that that really does start to change. Uh, the market around home-based care. So those kinds of things would be in our uh, in our newsletter.
1: That's great. Well, you know, I, I think this is all the time we have. You know, Krista's uh, really, really glad to have you join us today. It was really informative and I really appreciate all your insights here. And, you know, we look forward to following all the work that you're doing uh, with, both, uh, with both
0: organizations. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cowan Insights.